0: As I was praying, a, a bee or something was buzzing around my ear and reminded me, my, pa- my family's not here. Uh, they're in West Texas. And uh, uh, Heather sent me a picture yesterday of Nate shooting his first gun, a BB gun, a uh, Red Rider. Uh, and his grandfather's taught him how to shoot a BB gun. And the first thing he shot last night was a hornet's nest. Um, <laughs> And so the hornet stung Nate on the nose. So I was hoping that wasn't a hornet as I was praying. In 1914, the British explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, and 27 men on his crew committed... Decided that they wanted to be the first to cross Antarctica on land, and so they leave port and they make their way towards Antarctica. But as they get closer, um, their ship hits polar ice and gets stuck in the polar ice, and it it kind of functions like a a floating hotel for about six months. But then the ice begins to to really wreak havoc on the the ship. And these men, Ernest Shackleton and his men, had to get out of the boat and they had to pitch their thin linen tents on the ice. Uh, Ice that was moving and crackling underneath them, below the ice, was hundreds and hundreds of feet of ocean water. And for 15 months, they lived on this ice. They lived on it trying to survive. In fact, they had to kill their pet dogs because the penguins they were eating to survive had disappeared. Then they had to start eating their dogs. It was a very difficult uh, time, and they did all they could do to survive, and they did survive. But it was through uh, many dangerous toils and snares that they survived. But of all the difficulties, one of Ernest Shackleton's biographers said that of all these difficulties and uh, what they experienced was extreme cold temperatures, um, starvation, the the killing of their animals, the destruction of their boat, um, psychological problems that come with extreme circumstances. Of all the problems they faced, the most difficult of all was the darkness utter darkness. Nothing compares to the kind of darkness these men experienced. What they experienced was what they call the polar night. You see, around the South Pole, the sun goes down in mid-May, and it does not appear again until late July. And so these men, for over two months, experienced in those extreme circumstances Utter darkness. The kind of darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It was utterly dis- uh, disparaging for these men. And anybody who's written on the polar night will tell you it's the most difficult thing a human being could go through. But as dark as the polar night is, I would submit to you that nothing compares to the darkness of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that is coming. Do you know the Bible, and we're going to see this today, describes the day of the Lord as a day of desolate darkness. The day of the Lord was spoken of much about by the prophets. In fact, many will tell you that that was the central theme of the prophets. The day of the Lord. What is this day? Well, it's a day when Yahweh will vindicate His name... And judge his enemies. And that's the reason it's dark. It's a day of judgment. This darkness is a palatable, tangible symbol of God's displeasure on sin. But here's the mercy and grace in this the day of the Lord is more than just a day of judgment, it's also a day of salvation. The day that God will vindicate His name, yes, by judging His enemies, but by saving His people. But here's the question. How can a holy God, how, a, how can a God who is infinite in His holiness judge sin and save sinners like us? That's the real question of the Bible. John Bunyan long ago wrote, If he hides the sin or lessens it, he is faulty. If he leaves it still upon us, we die. That's the dilemma. If he hides it or lessens it, he's faulty. But if he leaves it still upon us, we die. That becomes the dilemma of Scripture. In our culture, in the 21st century, the dilemma is this. How can a loving God allow someone to go to hell? Well, let me tell you, that's the dilemma that is formed by fallen sinners. That's not the dilemma of Scripture. The dilemma of Scripture is how can a holy God allow a sinner into heaven? That is the central question of the Bible. And the answer to that, it would take a miracle. It would take infinite grace and mercy and love. It would take wisdom, but it would take a miracle. A miracle to deliver sinners from, as Paul says, from the power, the dominion of darkness and to transfer them into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And actually, as we're looking at this entire crucifixion account and the corresponding resurrection account in a couple of weeks, uh, we see that it's framed by a series of miracles utter miracles, all intended to convey the power of God in delivering sinners from their sin, from the, the world system that is ruled by the ruler of this age, the devil. It would take a miracle to deliver us and redeem us um, into this Kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And that's why this account is framed by miracles. The first miracle we're going to see in our passage is the sunlight fails as Jesus is on the cross. Now, keep in mind at this point, he has just told the repentant criminal, Today he will be with me in paradise. Now, look with me in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. According to Mark 15, verse 25, in that account, Jesus was placed, nailed to the cross in the third hour, which was 9 a.m. Well, at this point... It is the sixth hour. So he has been on the cross for three hours. It's 12 o'clock noon. And uh, now in the middle of the day, there is utter darkness. Now, is this an eclipse? Is that what happened this day uh, on the cross? Just uh, Is there some kind of scientific explanation for what happened? Well, let me just tell you. It's impossible that it was an eclipse. The full moon determined the time of the Passover. This was the time of the Passover, okay? We've, rec- we've seen that through the, the narrative. The full moon determined the time of the Passover, and an eclipse is impossible at the time of the full moon because the moon is on the wrong side of the earth for that. This is a miracle. Now, here's the question. What is the significance of this darkness? Well, I would submit to you the first significant reason behind this darkness is that Jesus is ushering in, he is leading a new exodus. Now, let me explain this. In Exodus, the book of Exodus, God through Moses delivers his people, out of political bondage, out of the slavery of Egypt. But we recognize through Scripture that that that, uh, exodus points to something greater. And the greater thing that it points to is what Jesus is going to accomplish for us. He is going to deliver us, not from political bondage, but from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. Now, you say, well, how do you get that from this passage? Well, keep in mind, in Exodus chapter 10, in Exodus chapter 10, you have the ninth plague. You know there were ten plagues before God delivered his people. Now, keep in mind, the ninth plague is eerily similar to what we see in this passage. In verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt a darkness to be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all of the land of Egypt three days. Now, if you look on in chapter 11, so that's the ninth plague, or yes, the ninth plague. In chapter 11 it says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, Afterward, he will let you go. After this tenth plague, I am going to deliver you. That's what he's telling Moses. In verse 4, it says So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. You understand that? So there was darkness. That was the ninth plague. That ninth plague was to signal that the tenth plague was going to be the deciding plague that would end up ushering Israel out of Egypt. What is the tenth tenth plague? The death of the firstborn son. In fact, Israel would be redeemed only because they take these lambs that we now know as Passover lambs and they... Put them to death and they sprinkled their doorpost with the blood. Okay? So that the angel of death will pass over those homes sprinkled in the blood. And in this darkness, we see in Luke chapter 23, Luke, by the Spirit of Christ, is signaling that new Exodus is here. Darkness is on the land for three hours. Now the death of the firstborn son and the death of the Passover lamb. The new exodus is here. And you go, where well, is that pressing things? Well, keep in mind in Luke chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. Something very interesting is said in verse 31. In Luke chapter 9 verse 31, it says... Or verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Well, it's a bad translation. If you look in the footnote of Luke 9.31 of your Bible, you'll see that the word is exodon. It's the word exodus. Luke was about is telling us that Jesus is going to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. Through the death of this firstborn son, through the death of the Passover lamb, God was bringing about a new exodus for those who would hide themselves under the blood of this sacrificial lamb. That is the significance of the darkness of the day. Uh, It's not like he's just giving us a meteorological report like, uh, you know, on July the uh, 27th, at Fisherville, it was kind of a rainy day that 's not what he 's doing. This is a theological statement, but not only that, even more specifically and connected to uh, this exodus is the broader theme that in the Old Testament, darkness is related to the judgment of the day of the Lord. Now, keep in mind that's found, and we we could never It would take us all afternoon to look at all the passages. But for instance, if you will look in Zephaniah, and we've got it on the board, Zephaniah chapter 1 speaks to this reality in verses 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near. See the language? And hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. See, so when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And then, if you look in Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath wrath. And fierce anger. To make the land a desolation. And to destroy its sinners from it. That's the day of the Lord. For the stars of the heavens. And their constellations. Will not give their light. In that day. The sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon. Will not shed. Its light. And then. In Amos. Chapter 8. On that day. Verse 9 declares the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. Ah. On that day. And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning. And all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist. And baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning. For an only son. And the end of it. Like bitter day. Indeed. The day of the Lord. Is the day. When God is going to pour out his wrath. On sinners. And here is the mystery. Of the new covenant. This is the mystery revealed to the apostles. Okay. A mystery that Jesus reveals to his disciples. When the Old Testament saints looked to that day, that day of the Lord, they saw one day. And they were correct. It was one day. What they did not recognize, because they did not have progressive revelation that we have, what they didn't recognize is that day would come in two stages. Okay? The day of the Lord comes in two stages. The first stage is the stage brought in, ushered in Through the man Jesus Christ. The second stage will be when he returns and consummates things. So that final stage, the day of the Lord, God is going to judge sinners. And it's going to be a day of wrath, a day of darkness. But what's being revealed here at the cross is that at this moment in time, God's judgment is resting on one man, Jesus Christ. And if you will hide yourself in Him, you will avoid the judgment to come. The judgment day is here in one man, the man Jesus Christ. Luke is saying that judgment's come, but it hasn't fallen on God's people. It's fallen on the Son. The firstborn son. As William Hendrickson writes in his commentary. Hell came to Calvary that day. And the Savior bore its horrors in our place. And hence the darkness. But the darkness wasn't the only miracle. The second miracle we see in our passage. Is that the veil, the curtain is torn in two. The temple. Look at the second part of verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What is this curtain? This curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place, what we call the Holy of Holies. There were three sections to the temple. Okay, you had the Holy of Holies, you had the holy place, and then you had the outer court corresponded to their cosmology, the Hebrew cosmology. That's another sermon for another day. But the holy place was the place where the priests did most of their duties. The holy of holies, the most holy place, no one went in there except the high priest, and that was once a year, the day of atonement. And in that holy of holies, that most holy place, there was an ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and on the ark were two cherubim, okay, with their wings extended, which harkens back to Genesis 3.24. And under the ark, or in the ark, you had um, the Ten Commandments, all right, which are broken, obviously. You had Aaron, the high priest, rod, and you had a jar of manna. The the uh, high priest would go in there once a year, With a sacrificed animal and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to satisfy God's uh, wrath on sin so that God could lovingly commune with his people. And here, for the first time in history, the curtain is torn in two to the most holy place, to the holy of holies. What's going on here? Well, first of all, let me just tell you this was a miracle. This was the second miracle that we see in our passage. Recognize that the curtain was 30 feet wide and 30 feet high. And it was an inch thick. That's some serious material, all right? So, not only that, Matthew and Mark's account tells us that when this curtain was torn in two, it was ripped from the top to the bottom. You know what that tells us? For someone to have torn that curtain would have required them to take a 25 to 30 foot ladder into the Holy of Holies with a saw and saw that curtain in two. Well, that's not going to happen because there were priests always in the holy place, morning and evening. Someone would have been seized and put to death for that. No. This was a miracle. Never mind the fact, notice the time in which it happens. As Jesus is on the cross, as darkness falls on uh, Jerusalem. But what is the significance of the tearing of the temple? Well, first and foremost, for the first time, sinners have access to the Holy of Holies. All right? The curtain protected us. It didn't protect God. It protected us. But because of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now made fit to come into His presence. Hebrews chapter 10 uh, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain." That is, through His flesh. Through His flesh, we're now able to enter a new and living way. We're able to circumvent the curtain. The curtain has been torn in two through His flesh. That, first and foremost, is the significance of the tearing of this Ladder. Keep in mind, we saw this last week in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. And the word for garden in Genesis 2 and 3 is the word paradise in the Greek, which uh, many of the uh, readers would have used in that day. It's the word paradise. Now, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and are cast out of, the, out of Eden... By the way, Eden was the first sanctuary. It's where God dwelled. Eden was the first holy of holies, if you will. All right? And that's the reason... The, the original priest king, Adam, was cast out of the Holy of Holies because he went AWOL. Uh, he rebelled against God. And so God cast him out of Eden and he establishes two ch- uh, the cherubim at the borders to guard the holy place, the most holy place. Now the only way to go through or back to the presence of God is through a mediator. And then it's interesting in Exodus chapter 25 verses 18 and 22 that when they, they built the tabernacle and they put the ark into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, they put two cherubim on the ark of the covenant. That wasn't just Martha Stewart decorating right there. This was, t- this was a theological statement. You will not come into the presence of God as a sinner then they did the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 8 in the temple. They established the Ark of the Covenant. They put the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant to signal no one comes in here unless they are as holy as God is holy. And now, through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is rent in the temple, revealing the holy place because we now have access to it through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it also signals that the temple, the physical temple, will no longer be the place where God's special revelatory presence dwells. His revelatory presence, and I, I, I use that term because he is omnis- He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. But there's a special glory presence, what we would call His evangelical presence. Okay, His glory presence... That you see in Exodus 40 when the tabernacle is built. You see it in 1 Kings 8 when the temple is built. This special revelatory presence that is confined and localized in the Holy of Holies is about to go unleashed on creation because of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the hope of the prophets. That was the hope of the Old Testament. Keep in mind in Numbers fourteen twenty one, God says... As surely as I live, the whole earth is going to be filled with my glory. What does he mean by that? The glory that's localized in the Holy of Holies, that was localized in the Garden of Eden, it's going to fill the earth one day, God says. And then you have, for instance, in Psalm 72, verse 19, the the son of David, Solomon, writes, May the whole earth be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14, the prophet writes, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The psalmist, Psalm 57, verse 5 and verse 11 and Psalm 108 says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory fill the earth. And in this atoning event, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is signaling that day is here. The glory presence of God is about to go unleashed on creation. And as a side, the Bible describes we, the people of God, as the temple. Not just the temple, but the holy of holies. The word in Greek is naos. It means holy of holies in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We are the holy of holies. We are the evidence that that day is here. And how is, by the way, that glory presence going to be filling the earth as the waters cover the sea? It's going to come through the Great Commission. As we take the gospel to the nations, God's glory presence is being extended to the ends of the earth so that one day this entire earth will be one big holy of holies. This whole earth is going to be Edenized, if you will. It's going to be one big Garden of Eden. It's going to be a temple city. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the veil being ripped in the temple signaled. That's the second miracle. But notice as well the third miracle, which really serves as the ground of the other miracles. Jesus' death in itself is a miracle. And I'll explain in a moment. Notice with me in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Keep in mind here that uh, it is Jesus who decided to commit his spirit. It wasn't the Jews... It wasn't the Romans. He's not a victim of the Romans and the Jews. His life was not taken from him against his will. In fact, uh, he had already prepared them for this, his disciples, uh, all the way back in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10 verse 11, Jesus had clearly stated um, some months back, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He lays it down. And then if you look in verse 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. So. Jesus, by committing his spirit to the Father, is essentially saying, I am sovereign. I'm in control of my own death. In fact, John 13 says, he loved his own till the end. This is love. Jesus Christ was not a victim. He willingly laid down his life to pay the price that had to be paid in order for us to have eternity secured. Now here's the thing, if this does not stir you, if this does not move you to the core, then recognize that you don't really understand how long eternity is. It is beyond your capacity. Perhaps you've just kind of swept that reality under the rug that after you die and you will die. There's some here today that may not finish the year. You may not finish next year. Death is imminent for everyone. And eternity hangs in the balance. And so Jesus Christ, through His atoning work, has secured eternity for those who would receive the provision. So if that does not stir you, you're living in delusion. Jesus willingly paid the price so that you could have your sins forgiven. And if you have not repented of your sins and run to Him and embraced Him by faith, that is the most delusional thing you could ever do. Now, I think to understand something of what he's saying here, this is the seventh saying of Jesus on the cross. We saw the first two last week. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we saw the second saying when he tells the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, I don't have time to deal with all the other statements. But I do think that the fourth and the sixth statement are appropriate here, are helpful here. In the fourth statement on the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. But it tells us what he's experiencing on the cross. He is experiencing the God forsakenness. He is separated from the Father. And for the first time in history, he calls the deity by his generic name My God, my God, there is separation. And in that separation, he is experiencing what we deserve judgment. He's experiencing wrath. And then in the sixth statement he cries to tell us die it is finished what's finished his life no his atoning work he has god's wrath has been spent on this god forsaken lamb it is finished in fact it's in the perfect tense in the original language which tells us it, it happens in the past and it has ongoing permanent effects. It will never be needed again, the sacrifice for sins. He has satisfied the wrath of God. And now, having satisfied the wrath of God, He says, My Father. The relationship is restored. It's no longer my God. It's my Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And that gives every Christian all the hope in the world as we face our own death. Because what's true of Jesus is true of us. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Him and been united to Him. Now, he is quoting Psalm 31. And in Psalm 31, verse 5, it's a psalm of David. And David cries, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, what David is praying here is that God would deliver him from his enemies. Okay? And then he almost names it and claims it. He says, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He is naming it. He is confessing it before the fact. You have redeemed me. I commit my spirit to you. You have redeemed me. And Jesus, by quoting this verse on the cross, is saying, I am committing my spirit to you, but I know that a dead Messiah is no good for anyone. I know that you will redeem me. And he does three days later. And our hope of redemption rests in God's redeeming Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead. This is a beautiful statement. Into your hands I commit my spirit. We can say that as well for those of us who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the fourth miracle. And let me just say as a side here, what's remarkable is that he does this at 3 p.m. Guess what? When did the priest offer the sacrifices in the temple every day? 3 p.m. But this is the final sacrifice. There will never be a need for animals to be sacrificed again. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 says that he offered up himself for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Well, that brings us to the fourth miracle. That kind of the, brings us to the head of everything that's, everything that's been said up to this point is bringing us to this point, I believe. The fourth miracle, and to borrow the lines from a great hymn. The fourth miracle is that ruined sinners are reclaimed through the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying certainly this man was innocent. Actually, I think a better translation in the King James actually picks this up is this man was the righteous one. Now, what's remarkable about this, this man was the one in charge of the crucifixion. I mean, he was, the, he was the head guy. You've got to be a cruel dude for your profession to be the foreman at crucifixions. You've got to be a cold kind of individual, the kind of man that is not moved by death the kind of man who is not stirred by people being brutalized on a cross. And why do I say he was the head guy? Well, he was a centurion. Centurions had great power. They, they led a century of soldiers, a hundred soldiers. They had a hundred men underneath them. Okay? So this guy was the was very likely the one in charge Of having Jesus put on the cross. Now I want you to also keep in mind. I believe this man is converted. Though Luke does not give us a full account of what he said. If you think back all the way to chapter 2. When Simeon first held baby Jesus in his arms. He says this one will be a light to the Gentiles. Okay. He's going to be the light to the Gentiles. And as Jesus Is breathes his last breath, the first one to confess him is a Gentile. Surely this is the righteous one. Surely this is the innocent one. And the reason I know Luke doesn't tell us all that he said is that Matthew and Mark tell us that he says, Surely this was the Son of God. Now here's the reason I believe he was converted. First of all, it says he praises God. If you're an unbeliever, you don't praise God. Worship bores you. The thought of worship, that's not even on your radar. You worship. You don't realize you worship, though. You worship an idol. But the worship of the true and living God, that's boring to unbelievers. Scripture says right here, he praised God. Secondly, he is a Gentile. This very clearly indicates that the hope for the nations is coming to blossom in the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the fact that he confesses him as the righteous one, and that very word is used in Isaiah 53, It that says that he will justify many, the righteous one. But then the fact that Matthew and Mark confess him as the Son of God, or, or this centurion confesses him as the Son of God, you have to understand how remarkable that was. On the Roman coin, of every Roman coin, here was the inscription. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The Caesar was the son of God. And every loyal Roman citizen would only call Caesar the son of God. But here this man, the centurion, gives Jesus that title. You know what kind of trouble that would put him in? Surely this was the Son of God. This is a miracle. This is an utter miracle that a man like this could be melted by the cross. And I don't believe he's the only one that's converted. Notice with me in verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, they're there to be entertained. How are you To be entertained by a crucifixion? What kind of state are you in? That's heinous. That's wicked. They were there for a spectacle. And when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. You say, well, that's a lot to say. They were converted just because they were beating their breast. This very word, this very statement is seen in Luke chapter 18. Jesus gives a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, Father, I'm so grateful I'm not like these sinners. The tax collector beat his breast. And he said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, This man went justified before God. This is the same language. Luke expects us to pick up the connection. These people in beating their breasts are confessing, We came to a spectacle. But now we behold a Savior. Linsky, R.H. Linsky, in his commentary says, They came to witness a show. They left with feelings of woe. And you will not be saved until you are declaring woe on your sin. There is absolutely no need for a Savior if you don't see yourself as a sinner in deserving of judgment. And that's where these people were. In fact, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, now this is talking about the day of the Lord. You can't get past the day of the Lord when you're reading the prophets. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. He's going to pour out his spirit, okay? I believe that spirit there should be capitalized to indicate that this will be the spirit of Yahweh. When they look on me, who's speaking? Yahweh. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced. What? Yahweh is speaking. They will look on Yahweh, on whom they have pierced. But notice, they shall mourn for him. Who's him? The Old Testament clearly reveals there is a plurality in the Godhead. They didn't have a full-blown understanding of the Trinity like we do, but here we see the Spirit's going to be poured out, and they're going to look on Yahweh whom they have pierced, and Yahweh says they will look on Him. They have pierced. They shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. If you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, Your head is in the sand. There is unity in the Bible. There is no way man created this. There is one divine author. It's impossible to have the unity of 66 books unless God the Spirit inspired this. It says they will look on him and mourn for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is being fulfilled before our very eyes here in this passage. And then note verse 49 as we close. And all his acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. It's kind of anticlimactic the way it closes. And Luke doesn't name the women His acquaintances that were there, Matthew, Mark, do. But this is an allusion to Psalm 38, verse 11, where it says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. Here's the difference between Psalm 38 and this passage. In Psalm 38, the psalmist is confessing sin. He has committed a heinous sin. He says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. The psalmist is confessing sin. And as a result of his embarrassing sin, his acquaintances have distanced themselves. Here's the difference. This is the righteous one. And because of the fear of man, even his closest acquaintances have distanced themselves from Him. This is the suffering servant dying alone for the salvation of those who don't even love Him. And aren't we like these people? By the way, they're going to change. These very people are going to change when they behold the risen Christ and when the Spirit of God is poured out on them, they're going to get really bold. Which tells us when we distance ourselves from Jesus, and you've done it, let's be honest, The Lord has led you to share the gospel with someone, but you don't want them to think less of you or negatively of you. So you just kind of distance yourself. The reason we distance ourselves is we're not filled with the Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, you get really bold. These very people are going to get very bold when they get filled with the Spirit, when they behold the risen Christ. But here at this moment, this is the believer... Who has, who is blind to the glory of the one that is dying on the cross for their sins. And Luke is reminding them that if you're going to love God, it's only going to happen in the context of redemption. We are naturally turned in on ourselves. We are naturally self-serving. We are naturally self-protecting. We are naturally um, self-loving. And if you're going to love God, it's only going to come through the context of redemption as you come to behold what God has done for you to secure your eternity. And that's why this passage is so crucial for the believer. Most of us here, we've read this passage a million times. But let me tell you, just because you're familiar with the passage does not mean you don't need it. Because the only thing that's going to save and change and melt your sinful and selfish heart is to see the glory of God as He redeems sinners on the cross through His firstborn Son. But this is also a passage for the unbeliever. And I believe there's some here today. I believe, and I don't have anyone in mind. It's not a judgment. I, that was one of those... Many years ago, everybody here that's a Christian was one of you at one time. But here's the thing. We all realize that we're going to die. I brought this up earlier. Here's the question. What are you banking on? What are you banking on? Are you banking on the fact that you're going to live forever? You know that's not even even sensical. You're going to die. And you might die sooner than you think. What are you banking on when you die? Are you banking on this delusion that you're just going to just be exterminated after death and there will be no consciousness? Well, let me just tell you, the resurrection tells you that's a lie. Jesus is raised from the grave. That is the first fruits of a future resurrection to come for both the believer and the unbeliever, John 5 tells us. Are you banking on the fact that God is just going to overlook your sin Well, the cross tells us that's a lie. God judges sin. Look at the cross. What are you banking on? And I would submit to you, do not today make the mistake of misplaced trust. And I was thinking about that. And I came across an article on the CNN website called Misplaced Trust. Here's the story. In 1911, there was a tsunami that hit a town in Japan. And Jim may correct me later, for how I pronounce this. But the name of the town as I read it. Is Oishi, Japan. In 1911. And 90% of the population. Of this, of this town. Was killed. By the tsunami. So here's what the townspeople did. They built a 30 foot wall. Good preparation right? They built a 30 foot wall. And they said the next time this happens. We're going to be ready. In fact, they were so secure in this wall that I read about a 77-year-old man who left his boyhood home in the hills with his wife and they came to the harbor so that they would have security in this town because of the wall. And in April of 2011, just three years ago, and 100 years to the year, they had the last tsunami, another tsunami hit. And it destroyed not only the wall, it destroyed the city. And the article in CNN was called Misplaced Trust. Why did they tile it that way? Because the village trusted in a wall that could not save them from the wrath of the tsunami. And I would ask you today, I would encourage you to don't make the same mistake. When it comes to God's wrath, what are you trusting in? Don't you know there's a day to come, the day of the Lord? But Jesus has taken the wrath for those who would believe so that you can never have to worry about that wrath again. All you have to do is trust Him. The darkness of that day tells us judgment's coming. But the curtain that was rent in the temple tells us that judgment has been averted in the substitute. If you will, trust Him. Let's pray.